This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, August 31st, 2018. Episode 56, Concerning a Junk Voyage Interrupted. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We left off last episode trekking alongside Marco Polo in the deserts of Iran. Since then, we've wandered our own way across the mountains of the Hindu Kush, followed the Indus down to the coast, and trekked southwards across the subcontinent to the southeastern port of Calicut, or Kozakod the city of spices, the namesake of calico cloth, and hints of calico cats. The journey's taken us about half a century, and we're arriving in southern India in the 1340s with the third traveler in our series, the explorer and diplomat Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta. Of the travelers in our series, Ibn Battuta has the most mileage under his belt. He essentially made a life out of traveling to new and distant places, Unlike our other travelers who either went out to serve fundamentally missionary or mercantile goals, who traveled as a means to an end, for Ibn Battuta, travel was the end goal, and diplomatic or religious missions were simply means to further the travel. He even offers up a guiding maxim, quote, never so far as possible to cover a second time any road, end quote, which would not be a sentiment out of place in the spiel of a modern travel writer or TV personality. In his life, he's estimated to have traveled over 75,000 miles, covering ground from West Africa and Spain all the way to the eastern coast of China, from the southern reaches of what is now Kenya up to the Black Sea and the frontiers of Russia, though not in that order. We'll get to some of the specifics of his journeys in a bit, but first let's look about how we know about them in the first place. After Ibn Battuta completed his last expedition in 1354, he was asked by the ruler of his native Morocco to make an account of his travels, which he did by dictating to a scribe provided by the king, Uh, rather like how Polo produced his book, though under better circumstances. The resulting text, finished the next year, has the formal title of, in English translation, Gift to those eager to observe the wonders of cities and marvels of journeys but it's more commonly known as the Rikhla, which means the travels, again, echoing Marco Polo. Unlike Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta is extremely prominent as a character in his text. Compared to our other writers, his work is much closer to autobiography than geography. Its veracity has been a matter of debate, though, uh, again, pulling Ibn Battuta back into similarity with Marco Polo, Doubts have been raised about whether he really made it to some of the places he describes, especially the most remote ones like Russia and Beijing, and some claim that he's co-opted the stories of other travelers as his own experiences. Some also allege that he consolidated events that happened on different journeys into single narratives, though that's almost to be expected from someone recounting 30 years of traveling in a retrospective. And even the skeptics generally accept that he did make it to a good number of the places he reports. As with Marco Polo, I'm not deeply read on Ibn Battuta. My sense is that skeptics of Polo actually getting to China are a fairly small minority. Skeptics of Ibn Battuta having been there are a somewhat larger set, uh, but still a minority of the overall opinion. And 
at the very least, the narrative we'll hear today does not seem to be a disputed one. The Russia and China trips might raise some eyebrows among skeptics, but his account of India in the travels seems pretty widely accepted. And at this point, let's detour through time for a bit, ahead to the 19th century, to look at the version of the travels we're going to hear. The basis for our text is the first English translation of the Rikla, which was made by the Reverend Samuel Lee in 1829. Now, normally I get a little nervous when I see a translation with a date of earlier than about 1850. Not only are there a lot of advances in philology, literary analysis, and historical scholarship that emerge as the 19th century rolls on, you also tend to find a kind of precious 18th century archaism. Uh, not to mention censorship and bowlerization uh, in how texts are translated that holds over into the early 1800s. Well, that said, I've actually gotten early 20th century translations that still insist on rendering things into this King James Bible dialect of early modern English with thee and thou and doth and goeth and kisseth and so forth. It can get a little tiresome. And actually, if anyone out there can recommend me a good article or book on Victorian philosophies of medieval translation, I'd love to dig into a scholarly analysis of what shaped these translators' approaches. Anyway, all that was just to say that I was pleasantly surprised at the wonderfully lucid translation that Lee gives us and the quite rich scholarly notes he provides. Lee was a professor of Arabic and Hebrew at Cambridge in the early 1800s which suggests only two of the many languages he had some proficiency in. As a young man, he taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, as well as picking up a working knowledge of Chaldean, Syriac, and Samaritan, and went on to learn Arabic, Persian, and Hindustani, the latter two well enough to give private lessons in, well before he'd even begun his university education. And after that, he contributed to the creation of the first Maori Dictionary, we have a surviving letter of Lee's which offers a narrative of this self-education and how it was very nearly all lost to poverty and necessity and was saved by a fortunate misfortune. I'm going to make a reading of that letter available as a special bonus for our Patreon supporters. If you're in that illustrious company, you'll be able to listen to it either directly on our Patreon page or via the patron-only RSS feed, which you can subscribe to in most podcast players in order to automatically get any bonus audio content that comes out. And speaking of patrons, Lee was able to continue his education in a formal capacity through the support of others, especially the Church Missionary Society, who paid for his enrollment at Cambridge University in 1813 at the age of 30, where just six years later he was made Professor of Arabic at the time still something of a scholarly novelty in England. Lee himself says that such a scholar was perceived as a, quote, monstrous singularity when his career was beginning. By the time it was wrapping up in the 1840s, the state of what was then called Oriental Studies in England was greatly improved, in large part because of the work of Lee and others like him to raise its status in the universities but also because such knowledge was becoming a more practical resource for a young generation of Britons who saw their careers lying in the growing British Empire in the East. Lee is quite aware of that pragmatic function of his field, and it's worth bearing in mind the colonial context of medieval scholarship in this period. 
Ibn Battuta and Marco Polo and Jordanus were all becoming objects of interest for scholars at this time for reasons beyond mere academic curiosity. Lee makes the purpose of his work quite explicit in an opening epistle attached to this translation and addressed to then-Lieutenant Colonel George Augustus Fitzclarence, later made First Earl of Munster, a British officer with experience in India and, at the time, the treasurer of the Oriental Translation Committee who published this book. Lee writes, The principal motive, however, which has induced me to inscribe this work to your name has been the consideration of public utility. No one, perhaps, can better estimate than yourself the duty incumbent on this country to possess an accurate knowledge of the history, geography, commerce, manners, customs, and religious opinions of the East. Placed as we are in the proud situation of legislating to perhaps its richest and most important part, and hence looked up to by its almost countless inhabitants for protection, instruction, government, Nothing can be more obvious than that it is just as binding upon us to acquaint ourselves with their wants in order to these being provided for and relieved, as it is that we should calculate upon the wealth of their commerce or the rank and influence which our governors, judges, and magistrates should hold among them. Unhappily, however, prior to the times of Sir William Jones, knowledge of this kind was scarcely available to the bulk of society and since that period, notwithstanding his glowing predictions to the contrary, the study of Oriental literature has seldom been carried beyond its first elements. A few scholars have, from time to time, appeared among the servants of the Honorable East India Company, but when we take into account the vastness of the means which we possess, together with the duty laid on us as a nation accurately to know the condition of so many of our fellow subjects in the East, it must appear that all which has been done so far from being matter of exultation, must rather tend to lower us in the opinion we would entertain of ourselves, and much more in that of the surrounding nations. It is not my intention to dwell here with the admirable Sir William Jones on the beauty of their poetry, the value of their sentiments as moralists or philosophers, or the almost boundless extent and variety of their languages, but on the paramount necessity of our possessing an accurate knowledge of their countries histories, laws, commerce, connections, tactics, antiquities, and the like, for purely practical purposes. Those of you who have listened to the introduction to our audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East might recognize that this is quite similar to what its translator, Henry Yule, says about the usefulness of his work. Both Yule and Lee see their work as a way of contributing not just to scholarship, but also to the activity of empire. Now, shifting ourselves to a different kind of practical matter, let's see where exactly our text comes from. Lee's translation of Ibn Battuta's travels is based on three Arabic manuscripts that were all in the Cambridge Library. All three are versions of the same abridgment of the original text. The travels is quite long, and it's not surprising that it was epitomized, abridged and condensed, in later copies. Lee didn't choose to translate the abridged version out of any laziness or desire for brevity. At the time that he was working, he tells us that no complete manuscript of the travels was known in England, though complete manuscripts were said to be out there. And indeed, one aim of publishing his translation was to prompt more interest in the text and help bring to light fuller copies. 
On the one hand, it's a little frustrating that we're working with an abridged text that drops out exactly some of the kind of details and digressions and anecdotes that we look for on this show. But two things. One, even this Reader's Digest version contains a lot of information, and I will supplement it here and there with bits from the fuller text. And two, this form of the text, and similar abridgments, was the way most medieval readers would have encountered it. And for a century, Lee's translation is how English speakers would have encountered it. Fortunately, complete manuscripts were revealed to Western scholars by the end of the 1800s, and so it became possible to produce a new English translation of the full text. In 1922, H.A.R. Gibb, lecturer in Arabic at the University of London's School of Oriental Studies, proposed making such translation of the travels for the Hacklet Society, based on the four volumes of the late 19th century edition of the Arabic text by C. Defremery and B. R. Sanguinetti. It took him a little while to bring this about. The first volume finally appeared in 1958, after Gibb had had a prestigious and active career as a professor at London, Oxford, and Harvard. The third volume came out posthumously in 1971, and the fourth volume completing the translation was only finished in 1994 by C.F. Beckingham, who had been hand-selected by Gibb to bring the job home. As Volume 4 contains the material for today's excerpt, that's what I'll be using to supplement Lee's translation. Either for interesting details that weren't included in the medieval abridgment that Lee was working from, or, in a couple of spots, to fill out passages that Lee has chosen to censor out of 19th century propriety. And I should advise sensitive listeners that there will be non-graphic, but nonetheless rather frank reference to sexual activity in today's text, including sex with enslaved people. It's not graphic, and it's not dwelt on, but it is there, and we will address it in the commentary afterward. Okay, and to bring us up to date for our text, let's jump back out of the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 14th to follow along with Ibn Battuta. Apart from one relatively brief notice from a 15th century Arabic biographical dictionary and one other brief mention in another work, pretty much everything we know about Ibn Battuta comes from his own account in the text of his travels. He was born in 1304 in Tangier in Morocco. His family were relatively high status, with a long tradition of serving as qadis or magistrates in Sharia courts, and Ibn Battuta almost certainly received a substantial education as a youth. His first journey was at the age of 21, when he went on pilgrimage to Mecca, a place where he not only fulfilled his hajj, but also continued his education with some of the leading scholars and religious men in the Islamic world. It was this trip that inflamed his passion for travel, and he sought out opportunities to go further. So he embarked on a second trip, which took him throughout the Middle East, from Persia into Mesopotamia, and then back to Mecca. A third journey took him down the coast of the Red Sea and into East Africa, and then back around the coast of the Persian Gulf. A fourth voyage was intended to take him to India, but wound up detouring through Egypt and Syria, and then into Turkey and other parts of Asia Minor. From here, the travels tell us he went on into the Crimea and Bulgaria, visiting the lands of the Khan of the Golden Horde, and making it up into the southern parts of Russia. Then, after a stop-off in Constantinople, he took the road through Afghanistan to arrive at the Indus River in India in 1333, 
now a man of some renown, traveling with a significant entourage of slaves and attendants. In Delhi, he settled in at the court of Sultan Muhammad, where he followed in his familial tradition by serving as Malachite Grand Qadi of Delhi. After a few years of serious political ups and downs, some of which saw him escaping possible death, he once more found himself in favor with the Sultan, and in 1342 was appointed his envoy to the Mongol Emperor of China. And it is just shortly into this voyage, as Ibn Battuta journeys from Delhi down through central India and to Calicut on the Malabar coast, that we join him in our excerpt for today. As I mentioned, the bulk of the text is Lee's translation. I've silently plugged in here and there a few extra details from the 1994 Gibb and Beckingham translation, though where there's actually a difference between what Lee gives and what they give, uh, there I'll add a little note indicating this. Also, Lee uses some outdated terminology, uh, namely Mohammedan instead of Muslim. I'm going to let that stand as an artifact of the translation. Some have made serious objections to it as a term, but generally it seems to be taken as non-preferred, but not actively offensive, uh, except perhaps when used by someone in the 21st century who is deliberately choosing not to use the preferred term, Muslim. Uh, one thing I have changed is Lee's rather rare use of Islamist and Islamism in place of Muslim and Islam, since the meaning of that form has changed significantly and negatively and could be a point of confusion. On a different note, you might keep an ear out for a little cameo by the stitched-together boats that Marco Polo was so dismissive of last episode. Ibn Battuta recognizes their advantages. And so with that, we now join the travels of Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta already in progress. came next to Calicut, one of the great ports of the district of Malabar, and in which merchants from all parts are found. The king of this place is an infidel, who shaves his chin just as the Haidari fakirs of Rum do. When we approached this place, the people came out to meet us, and with a large concourse brought us into the port. The greatest part of the Mohammedan merchants of this place are so wealthy that one of them can purchase the whole freightage of such vessels as put in here, and fit out others like them. Here we waited three months for the season to set sail for China, for there is only one season in the year in which the Sea of China is navigable. Nor then is the voyage undertaken except in vessels of the three descriptions following. The greatest is called a junk, the middling-sized a zaw, the least a kakam. The sails of these vessels are made of cane reeds woven together like a mat, which, when they put into port, they leave standing in the wind. In some of these vessels there will be employed a thousand men, six hundred of these sailors, and four hundred soldiers. Each of the larger ships is followed by three others, 
a middle-sized, a third, and a fourth-sized. These vessels are nowhere made except in the city of El Zaytun in China, or in Sin Kilan, which is Sin El Sin. They row in these ships with large oars, which may be compared to great masts, over some of which five and twenty men will be stationed, who work standing. The commander of each vessel is a great emir. In the large ships, too, they sow garden herbs and ginger, which they cultivate in cisterns made for that purpose, and placed on the sides of them. In these also are houses constructed of wood, in which the higher officers reside with their wives, but these they do not hire out to the merchants. Every vessel, therefore, is like an independent city. Of such ships as these, Chinese individuals will sometimes have large numbers, and generally, the Chinese are the richest people in the world. Now, when the season for setting out had arrived, the Emperor of Hindustan appointed one of the junks, of the thirteen that were in the port, for our voyage. El Malik Sambul, therefore, who had been commissioned to present the gift, and Zahir Adin went on board, and to the former was the present carried. The factor on the junk was called Suleiman of Safad in Syria. I had made his acquaintance previously, and I said to him, I want a cabin to myself because of the slave girls, for it is my habit never to travel without them. He replied, The merchants from China have hired the cabins for the outward and return journey. My son-in-law has one which I can give you, but it has no lavatory. Perhaps you may be able to exchange it for another. So I also sent my baggage, servants, and slave girls on board, but was told by one of them, before I could leave the shore, that the cabin which had been assigned to me was so small that it would not take the baggage and slave girls. I went, therefore, to the commander, who said, There is no remedy for this. If you wish to have a larger, you had better get into one of the Kakams. There you will find larger cabins and such as you want. I accordingly ordered my property to be put into the Kakam. This was in the afternoon of Thursday, and I myself remained on shore for the purpose of attending divine service on the Friday. the night, however, the sea arose, and then some of the junks struck upon the shore, and the greatest part of those on board were drowned, and the rest were saved by swimming. There was a slave girl who belonged to one of the merchants, and a favorite of his. He offered to give ten dinars in gold to anyone who would rescue her, for she had clung to a spar in the stern of the junk. A sailor from Hormuz undertook to do it, and brought her ashore, but would not take the dinars, saying, I did this only for the sake of God. Some of the junks, too, sailed off, and what became of them I know not. The vessel in which the present was stowed kept on the sea till morning, when it struck on the shore, and all on board perished, and the wealth was lost. I had indeed seen from the shore the emperor's servants, with El Malik Sambul and Zahir Adin prostrating themselves almost distracted, for the terror of the sea was such as not to be got rid of. I myself had remained on shore, having with me my prostration carpet and ten dinars, which had been given me by some holy men. These I kept as a blessing, for the Kakam had sailed off with my property and followers. The missionaries of the king of China were on board another junk, which struck upon the shore also. Some of them were saved and brought to land, and afterwards clothed by the Chinese merchants. 
In the morning, we went to the scene of their disaster. I saw Zahir Adin with his head smashed and his brains scattered, and El Malik Sambul had a nail driven through one of his temples and coming out at the other, and having prayed over them, we buried them. I was told that the kakam in which my property was must have put into Kalam. I proceeded, therefore, to that place by the river. It is situated at the distance of ten days from Calicut. After five days, I came to Kandrakara, which stands on the top of a hill, is inhabited by Jews, and governed by an emir who pays tribute to the king of Kalam. All the trees we saw upon the banks of this river, as well as upon the seashores, were those of the cinnamon and bakam, which constitute the fuel of the inhabitants, and with this we cooked our food. Upon the tenth day, we arrived at Kalam, which is the last city on the Malabar coast. In this place is a large number of Mohammedan merchants, but the king is an infidel. In this place I remained a considerable time, but heard nothing of the kakam and my property. I was afraid to return to the emperor, who would have said, How came you to leave the present and stay upon the shore? For I knew what sort of man he was in cases of this kind. I also advised with some of the Mohammedans, who dissuaded me from returning, and said, He will condemn you because you left the present. You had better, therefore, return by the river to Calicut. I then betook myself to Jamal Adin, king of Hinaur, by sea, who, when I came near, met me and received me honorably, and then appointed me a house with a suitable maintenance. He was about to attend on divine service in the mosque and commanded me to accompany him. I then became attached to the mosque and read daily a katma or two. At this time, the king was preparing an expedition against the island of Sindabur. For this purpose, he had prepared two and fifty vessels, which, when ready, he ordered me to attend with him for the expedition. Upon this occasion, I opened the Quran in search of an omen, and in the first words on the first leaf which I laid my hand upon was frequent mention of the name of God and the promise that he would certainly assist those who assisted him. I was greatly delighted with this, and when the king came to the evening prayer, I told him of it and requested to be allowed to accompany him. He was much surprised at the omen and prepared to set out in person. After this, he went on board one of the vessels, taking me with him, and then we sailed. When we got to the island of Sindabur, we found the people prepared to resist us, and a hard battle was accordingly fought. We carried the place, however, by divine permission, by assault. After this, the king gave me a slave girl, with clothing and other necessaries, who was called Lamki. I called her Mubaraka. And when her husband wished to ransom her, I refused. I resided with the king some months. I then requested permission to make a journey to Kalam to inquire after the Kakam with my goods. He gave me permission after obtaining a promise that I would return to him. I then left him for Hinaur, then proceeded to Fakanaur, and thence to Manjurur, thence to Hili, Jarafatan, Badafatan, Fandarena, and Calicut, mention of which has already been made. I next came to the city of Shaliat, where the Shaliats are made, and hence they derive their name. This is a fine city. I remained at it some time, and there heard that the Kakam had returned to China, and that my slave girl, who had been pregnant, had died in it, and I was much distressed on her account. The infidels, too, had seized upon my property, and my followers had been dispersed among the Chinese and others. I then returned to Sindabaur to the king Jamal Odin at the time when an infidel king was besieging the town with his troops. I left the place, therefore, and made for the Maldive Islands, at which, after ten days, I arrived.
These islands constitute one of the wonders of the world, for their number is about 2,000, nearly a hundred of which are so close to each other as to form a sort of ring, each of which, nevertheless, is surrounded by the sea. When vessels approach any one of them, they are obliged to show who they have on board. If not, a passage is not permitted between them, for such is their proximity to each other that the people of one are recognized by those of another. The greatest trees on these islands are those of the coconut, the fruit of which they eat with fish. Of this sort of trees, the palm will produce fruit twelve times in the year, each month supplying a fresh crop so that you will see upon the trees the fruit of some large, of others small, of others dry, and of others green. And this is the case always. From these they make palm wine and oil, and from their honey, sweetmeats, which they eat with the dried fruits. There is a strong incentive to venery. Or, as Gibbon Beckingham's translation puts it, all these products of the cocoa palm and fish which they live on have an amazing and unparalleled effect in sexual intercourse, and the people of these islands perform wonders in this respect. Resuming Lee's translation, I had some slave girls and four wives during my residence here. And here Lee omits another passage which he says, quote, will not bear translating, unquote. Gibb and Beckingham can bear it, though, and supply four wives and concubines as well, and I used to visit them every day and pass the night with the wife whose turn it was and this I continued to do the whole year and a half that I was there. Resuming. The people are religious, chaste, and peaceable. They eat what is lawful, and their prayers are answered. Their bodies are weak. They make no war, and their weapons are prayers. They are by no means terrified at the robbers and thieves of India, nor do they punish them, from the experience that everyone who steals will be exposed to some sudden and grievous calamity. When any of the war vessels of the infidel Hindus pass by these islands, they take whatsoever they find without being resisted by anyone. But if one of these infidels should take for himself, surreptitiously, but a single lemon, his chief will not only severely punish him, but will impress most seriously upon his mind the fear of some horrible consequence to follow. Excepting this one case only, they are the most gentle people possible towards those who visit them. The reason probably is the delicacy of their persons and their ignorance of the art of war. In each of these islands are several mosques, which, with the rest of their buildings, are constructed of wood. They are a cleanly people, each individual washing himself twice daily on account of the great heat of the sun. They very much use perfumes, such as the galia and scented oils. Every woman must, as soon as her husband has arisen and said his prayers, Bring him the box of collyrium for his eyes, with the perfumes, and with these he anoints and perfumes himself. Both the rich and poor walk barefoot. The whole country is shaded with trees, so that a person walking along is just as if he were walking in a garden. The water of their wells is not more than two cubits from the surface of the earth. Whenever a traveler enters these islands, he may marry, for a very small dowry, one of the handsomest women for any specific period, upon this condition, that he shall divorce her when he leaves the place, because the women never leave their respective districts. But if he does not wish to marry, the woman in whose house he lodges will cook for him and otherwise attend on him for a very small consideration. The greatest part of their trade consists in a sort of hemp, that is, thread made of the fibers of the coconut. 
It is made by macerating the nut in water, then by beating it with large mallets till it is quite soft. They then spin it out and afterwards twist it into ropes. With this thread, the ships of India and Yemen are sewn together, of which, when they happen to strike against a rock, the thread will yield a little, but will not soon break, contrary to what happens when put together with iron nails. This is the best sort of hemp. Each population catches the fish of its own island only, which they salt and send to India and China. The currency used instead of coin is the wada. This is the cowrie shell which they take upon the shore and then bury in the earth till the flesh is entirely wasted away, the hard part still remaining. This is the wada which is so abundant in India. It is carried from these islands to the province of Bengal, and there also passes instead of coin. The women of the islands of India cover their faces and also their bodies from the navel downwards. This they all do, even to the wives of their kings. When I held the office of judge among them, I was quite unable to get them covered entirely. Gibb and Beckingham provide a different reading which makes more sense. Their women folk do not cover their heads, not even at one side. Most of them wear only one apron from the navel to the ground, the rest of their bodies being uncovered. It is thus that they walk abroad in the bazaars and elsewhere. When I was Cadi there, I tried to put an end to this practice and ordered them to wear clothes, but I met with no success. No woman was admitted to my presence in a lawsuit unless her body was covered, but apart from that, I was unable to effect anything. Some of them wear shirts in addition to the waistcloth, their shirts having short and wide sleeves. I had some slave girls who wore garments like those worn in Delhi and who covered their heads, but it was more a disfigurement than an ornament in their case, since they were not accustomed to it. Resumingly, In these islands, the women never eat with the men, but in their own society only. I endeavored, while I was judge, to get my wives to eat with me, but I could never prevail. Their conversation is very pleasing, and they themselves are exceedingly beautiful. So, there's a rather different TripAdvisor review of the amenities of an exotic locale than we had from Marco Polo. I picked out this particular incident from the huge scope of the travels because it was referenced in one of Henry Yule's footnotes to Jordanus, where he says that Ibn Battuta gives a particularly fine description of Chinese junks. So, I came to this section of the text for the junks and found a rather dramatic shipwreck, which is right up our alley. Thus far into the narrative, the fact that he's traveling with a company of slave girls, to use Lee's term, is kind of an incidental curiosity. But I decided to keep going into the section on the Maldives, and suddenly Ibn Battuta's relationships with women and with slave girls, or concubines to use an alternative term, becomes more central, and it resonates back into the shipwreck narrative, and draws one's attention to how that is framed fundamentally as a loss of property and a loss of one's comforts and luxuries, which includes the people. It seems like an issue I can't ignore. Also, let me just say that between slave girl and concubine, I don't really know which term is preferable. Uh, slave girl certainly sounds rather demeaning, but concubine seems a bit euphemistic, obscuring the nature of this relationship. 
So I'll use both, since both appear in the different sources I'll be referencing. So let's talk about slavery, particularly of women, in Ibn Battuta's world. First, a caveat. This is not my area of expertise, and I'm going to talk in some generalities that certainly don't apply to all places and all moments in the medieval era, and both rationales for and against slavery and practices within it were expressed differently and at different volume levels, so to speak, at different moments in time and in different places. Also, this topic touches on themes that have made their way into the rhetoric of modern Islamophobia, which loves to collapse historical context, and I don't want to contribute to that. But I also don't want to slip into the kind of reluctance to judge another time and culture that can end up leading to an apology for slavery. I think there are cultural values and practices, especially in past eras, that one should withhold judgment on. Slavery is not one of them, uh, not for me. It may be fair to point out that slavery in the classical and medieval world operated in different cultural and economic contexts than the slavery of the colonial age, and particularly of the American South, which tends to dominate our mental landscape of what slavery is, and which makes it harder to see past that and to perceive the earlier forms as they were. But this line of argument skims along the edge of becoming an apology for slavery, especially when people assume that the takeaway is that Roman slavery, for example, wasn't that bad in comparison to the plantation system. There were meaningful differences, but the lesson shouldn't be that those differences mean it wasn't so bad. The fundamental commonality of people being defined as property is where our attention should be. So, all that in mind, let me attempt a nutshell presentation of the context that Ibn Battuta is writing in. Slavery in the medieval Muslim world had similarities with both the slavery of ancient Rome and of the colonies of the New World, namely that by law, slaves had to be members of an outgroup. It was illegal to enslave Muslims or other members of a monotheistic faith who lived under Muslim rule, and that last qualification points to one way of legally creating slaves, which was through taking captives in warfare. Slaves were also taken from the frontiers of Muslim territory and unconverted lands, which is primarily what we're seeing in Ibn Battuta's India. It's also worth clarifying that once enslaved, a person could be converted to Islam and still remain a slave, which accounts for some references in our text which might otherwise seem paradoxical. Furthermore, the children of slaves were automatically slaves themselves, unless the slave owner acknowledged paternity, which made the child free and bestowed special rights on the mother, though not freedom. Female slaves of powerful men and officials could be kept as concubines, being required to serve the sexual needs of their master. Many of these men were married, perhaps with multiple wives, as Ibn Battuta was, but conservative cultural attitudes and religious requirements meant that the kind of sexual activity wives could engage in was quite restricted. They had to conform to standards of modesty and maintain ritual purity at appropriate times. But there were no such limitations surrounding sex with slaves, so some commentators described slaves as basically necessary outlets for the satisfaction of the sexual appetite of the husbands, a general principle by no means unique to the Muslim world, especially if you substitute women of any lower social status or sex workers in place of slaves. Ibn Battuta, in the bits of this translation that Lee preferred to elide, 
is quite candid about the role these women play in his life and the main reason he really needs to travel with them. Is there also companionship and conversation and general domestic service and even emotional connection? Sure. But there is a primary function that is quite openly and unapologetically recognized. And, of course, what the women's experience was and what they thought and felt about it is not something that's preserved in our text. An article by Marina Tolmachova, which has been a main source for me for this discussion of slavery, offers some interesting thoughts on what it meant for these women to become part of Ibn Battuta's entourage, and whether traveling with him offered some semblance of liberation. On the one hand, spatial restriction and segregation was a major feature of female life in the medieval Muslim world, well, and for that matter, in a lot of the rest of the medieval world, and both long before and long after the medieval era. There is this notion that being part of this traveling caravan might afford greater... Freedom really isn't the right word, uh, but opportunity, maybe. Uh, at least a much less circumscribed life than being shut up inside the walls of a household for all of one's days. And furthermore, this mobile household was a diverse one, full of people of many different lands and cultures. It sounds practically cosmopolitan. There may be some degree to which this is true, but Tolmachova points out that the other reality is that the women, and the male slaves too, were the baggage of a foreigner. As a foreigner, Ibn Battuta was nonetheless received in the courts he arrived at as a fellow Muslim. But his servants remained marked as strangers, and were limited in how they could interact with the rest of the city. Though they seemed to move throughout this vast world, they're actually profoundly isolated from each of these new places they arrive at. And that multicultural household was not necessarily a melting pot. It could well have been a community of people who remained largely strangers to each other, fragmented by ethnic and linguistic differences. So, was it a journey that created a rough-and-ready camaraderie as all are thrown together amongst the trials and tribulations of travel? Or was it a parade of peril and punishment, dangers and alienation? Ibn Battuta's own narrative provides little glimpses of both, there's a tale earlier in the travels of a harrowing childbirth out in the frozen wilderness which the women of the troop bring to a happy conclusion, and one of an earlier incident on a foundering ship, where Ibn Battuta sent some of his servants, including his favorite concubine, off to safety on a raft while he remained behind on the sinking ship. And you have him not just grieving the loss of his favorite concubine in the less happily resolved shipwreck of today's text, but recording and expressing that grief in his narrative. That said, while we might note Ibn Battuta's pain at losing this one slave girl pregnant with his child, the loss of the rest of his servants seems largely to fall into the same category as his baggage and property in terms of how the loss affects him. Elsewhere, we also see him quite matter-of-factly buying and trading people and taking on and divorcing new wives as he moves from country to country, sometimes leaving those divorced wives behind in a foreign land. We also have the bit in today's text about him taking a slave whom he knows is married, to an infidel, and refusing to let the husband ransom her back because he just prefers to keep her. On balance, I think the rosier image of a bohemian traveling family is not particularly well supported. 
All right, let's wrap up by wrapping up Ibn Battuta's life. He spent a year and a half in the Maldives, and the description he provides here, and which we have only just heard the first part of, is the most detailed of all the early accounts we have, which makes it especially valuable for filling in our knowledge of the history of these islands, and helps show what makes Ibn Battuta so valuable for historians. After this sojourn, around 1343 or so, he went on to Ceylon, Bengal, Sumatra, and finally found a reliable junk to carry him to the Chinese port of Fujian, or Zeitun as he calls it. Compared to his previous destinations, he was not in China very long, returning to India in 1347. 1348 found him in Syria, just in time to behold the calamity of the Black Death. Escaping this, he made his way back to Morocco. But even this wasn't the end of his travels. He was in his mid-40s, and he still had a couple more expeditions in him. Not long after reaching Morocco, he struck out northwards across the Strait of Gibraltar and into Grenada in Andalusia. Bopping back into Morocco for a bit, he then went south into West Africa, crossing the Sahara and visiting the Muslim Empire of Mali. He survived the return journey across the Sahara, dictated the narrative of his life's travels to a scribe, as I described earlier, and settled down into life as a Qadi in Morocco in, quote, some town or other, end quote, and disappears from the rest of history, though it's believed that he died in the late 1370s. Our mystery word this episode is related to Ibn Battuta's story from today's text, though it comes from a different culture than his. The word is Quadenramp, Q-U-A-D-E-N-R-A-M-P. This is a nice mystery word because even though it's from Middle English, it's kind of a dead-end word. It doesn't really have any obvious cognates surviving in present-day English, though you will find some in modern Germanic languages. This word means misfortune, such as either losing everything in a shipwreck or being one of those lost in the shipwreck, which is maybe a bit more than just misfortune. It's a compound word, combining quaid, or queed, with romp. Old English qued, C-W-E-D, meant dung or filth. Moving into Middle English, it broadens to mean evil or mischief or harm, and also begins to appear with a Q-U spelling, a change which gradually overtook all of our C-W words, um, influenced by French and Latin. Rampen is a verb meaning to push force, or ram something against something else. So, quaden ramp is an evil blow, or a stroke of bad luck, a misfortune. And in Middle and Modern Dutch, romp means calamity or disaster. Interestingly, quaid appears in medieval surnames, presumably from being a nickname for a mischievous person. Though, if you know a quaid today, Dennis, Randy, or otherwise, they are probably of Irish extraction, with their quaid being a shortening of Macquaid, M-A-C-U-A-I-D. Though I suppose that doesn't rule them out as being of a mischievous or troublemaking disposition. All right, that brings us to the end of this leg of our voyage. We have one more stop to go on our tour of medieval travel writers, um, which means our month of travel writers is going to spill over into September a little bit. In the meantime, you can get more information about this episode, including references for the two translations of Ibn Battuta and Marina Tolmachova's article, at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. 
You can also send me email there at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com or tweet to me at mdtpodcast. And if you've been enjoying this series, then you'll probably enjoy our audiobook of Jordanus's Mirabilia Descripta or Wonders of the East, which you can get by becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com mdtpodcast or search for Medieval Death Trip at patreon.com. And remember, Patreons will also be able to hear the little Samuel Lee appendix to this episode. Until next time, safe travels to all, and thanks for listening. <laughs>